the reason for setting up the working group was um, for middle-aged black men to walk and talk for our mental health and well-being. Because as you are aware, the only spaces that black men or black people tend to converge are the barber shops yeah. or the hairdressers. Yeah. So those are the confined spaces that they go to share their lived experience of things. So we wanted to create that wider outdoor space. And that is the countryside where yeah. people could walk freely without being judged, without being... So we, so because of that, you know, it, it promoted that kind of friendship and respect. Yeah. So when you people walk, it pr- improves their mental and physical well-being. It also promotes friendship, help to distress. It's a whole lot of health benefits. Hello, I'm Abna Selwa, the editor of Akadi Magazine, and welcome to another Connecting Communities episode where we spotlight Ghanaians making transformative changes in their communities. You were just listening to Maxwell Ayamba, a PhD research student in Black Studies at the Department of American and Canadian Studies at the University of Nottingham. His research explores the trajectory of race ecology and environmental justice in the UK. Maxwell is passionate about the countryside and increasing access for black, Asian and other global majority groups and refugee communities, which is why he co-founded the 100 Black Men Walk for Health Group and established the Sheffield Environmental Movement. He was recognised in the UK's 2023 New Year's Honours List with the Member of the Order of the British Empire for services to the environment and to the community in Sheffield. In this episode, Maxwell explains why access to the countryside is so important for Black and Asian and other global majority groups, and why, in 2021, he was named as one of the 70 most remarkable people in the history of the Peak District National Park. Well, thank you so much for giving me some of your time. Thanks for having me on board. Um, I'm very grateful, yeah, for me to contribute to your podcast. So um, my name is Maxwell Paladaga Ayamba. I'm from Ghana originally, even though um, I'm British. That said, I'm Ghanaian. That's always been my identity and who I am. So I am, by training, uh, an environmental journalist um, and then also an ecocentrist and then an academic. So I wear several hats. And so um, much of my lived experience is both theory and practice in terms of the work I do. I'm currently doing um, my my PhD uh, in Black Studies at the University of Nottingham. So I'm looking at the trajectory of race, ecology, and environmental justice in the UK. Prior to that, I um, was a lecturer at Sheffield Alam University. Uh, And then also um, I set up a charity called Sheffield Environmental Movement. Yeah. In 2016. And then I also co-founded a working group called 100 Black Men Walk for Health, yeah. which um, we are advocating for our rise to the countryside, the English countryside, something that we have been erased or written out. Uh, so our presence, they have not been given that kind of um, recognition and we appear invisible in those spaces. Mm. Um, and so the 100 Black Men Walk for Health group, which I co-founded in um, 2004, eventually led to a national play called Black Men Walking, yeah. um, which was written by a rapper called Testament, who also happened to be half Ghanaian, to be honest with you. And so basically the play was about tracing 500 years of Black British history in the, uh, in the countryside, dating back to 
the to-do, black to-dos, blackamores, uh, what do you call it, um, the enslaved people. Even, um, you know, the first black Roman empire, Servus Septimus. But then all this history, like I said, Abina, um, has been erased. Um, nobody has heard about anything about black people in, our land, in the landscape. And therefore what happens is we have a situation where black appearance in those landscapes seem to be out of place. Mm-hmm. Where mostly we are supposed to be urbanized. And, and so they have that kind of the English landscape becoming normalized as a white space, which has led to minoritized people really or black people having that kind of, um, you know, fear or worry or concern of really accessing spaces that they are not used to or they are not aware of uh, or don't know what to expect. And so I have always been a pioneer in that area trying to to break that myth where basically it's surrounded by the fact that it's a white space. And so that's what my academic work have all along been about and also my um, the campaigns. Uh, so I'm I'm a campaigner as well, in addition to uh, being an academic, campaigning actively to ensure that, um, you know, we have access to countryside space. This is something that I felt is not giving much credence or attention, especially considering the fact that as Black people, we are susceptible to all kinds of illnesses, especially mental health, and then diabetes, prostate cancer. We also lack vitamin D, which actually affects us, mm-hmm. uh, lack of exposure to sun. And because our people come here, they have to struggle on a daily basis to survive because they don't have good jobs, um, you know, housing situations, education. And so they live on the margins of society. And so as a result of that, it impacts on their health and well-being. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that the environment is so crucial, so important to reconnect to our people back to nature. Because obviously we come from rural backgrounds back home. You know, we, you know that's, where, that's our source of livelihood. Well, that's what I wanted to touch on that with you, because if we go back to when you were growing up in Ghana, I don't know what part, I'm interested to see this connection you have with nature when you live here. I mean, I grew up in northern Ghana and, and basically, I mean, being a rural community, basically we had that kind of bond or affinity with nature. As you know, in the, in, in rural farming areas in, in, in Ghana, farming is a source of livelihood, nature is our everything. So we have what we call, I call it biocentric connection mm. so we are biocentric maybe part of nature and so we have that kind of reverence so therefore we revere nature but having migrated to to the west or to, to the uk per se there's that kind of cultural severance or disconnection between mm. you know our heritage that we came from and now coming to live in, in an urbanized environment and that's how i found myself when i came here to study journalism at cardiff university um and then eventually coming to do my master's at sheffield university i discovered that you know, black people were not <laughs> accessing the countryside at all. It was seen as a privileged white, white middle-class space. Meanwhile, back home, that's not the issue. Back home, you know, nature is our everything, as you as you can imagine, or as you rightly yeah. pointed out. What what and, part um, of the north are you from? Sorry. Yeah, I'm from I'm from Paga. Um, okay, the crocodiles. Yeah, crocodile pond. Yeah, so obviously, um, which is our totem as well. Uh huh. And so it just goes to demonstrate how close we are with nature, um, you know, coming from that particular part of Ghana. And um, and this is something that I, I believe man is part of nature. Um, and in England, I think um, because of that severance from nature, especially among black people or, you know, uh, or minoritized people, it's impact on health and well-being, like I rightly said. Yeah. And so I tend to call the natural environment our natural health service. Nature is our health. It provides that kind of um, what we call preventative care, mm. you know, uh-huh. 
and and back home people have that kind of traditional knowledge of the herbs and plants and everything they led healthy lives and longer lives and better quality of lives now the, the trajectory of migration the history of migration they ended up here and they've lost all that I think it's interesting where you talked about in this country and maybe in the West, it's seen as a privilege to be living close to nature, whereas in maybe other parts of the world, in the Southern Hemisphere, the idea is to get closer to the city because that's where the money is and living in the rural areas is seen as maybe a bit less attractive from that point of view, not realising how beneficial it is to your health. I mean, going back to what I said, you know, um, that's what I use the word biocentrism means we are part of nature. And you find out that once we find ourselves in those pristine environment, natural environments, that is where we feel a lot better, you know, and mm. happier. And if you are divorced from nature and you are surrounding a concrete jungle like we are living in cities, exposed to poor air pollution. I mean, you look at air pollution is one of the biggest, the biggest issues mm. in, in, in England. Um, and you might have heard about that Ghanaian girl, nine-year-old girl um, who, who, you know, who died in yes, London. Yes, Ella Roberta. Yeah. We've That's actually right, yeah. interviewed her mum, Rosamond. Uh-huh. We interviewed her. She was our first interviewee on the podcast. So uh-huh. I know she's doing a lot of work to push through the legislation uh-huh. that will clean our air up. Yeah, but it's, it's still it's a struggle because, um, um, I mean, um, air pollution is, is, is such a very serious um, issue uh, in England. And, you know, most of our people live in this you know, heavily polluted in zones. Yeah. And and as and as a result of that, it affects our, you know, our lungs, cardiovascular diseases, as as I mentioned earlier on, especially asthma, it triggers asthma and all those kind of health conditions. It's also linked to mental health. It's linked it's linked to, you know, bone deficiency. It's it's linked to a whole lot of things that air pollution yeah. is linked to. And when the COVID happened, uh, most people really uh, from minoritized communities were victims of um, the COVID. And that's because, you know, they had these underlying conditions, which were then triggered off by, you know, the, the you know, the air that they were exposed to. Mm. And so much of this work that I'm doing is trying to reconnect people to the natural world. And like you rightly said, it's a privileged space. Whereas back home, we have serious rural urban migration here, if you are not wealthy, you can't live. You're not privileged. You can't live in the countryside. It's, you can't afford to live. They're so expensive. It's so dear. You don't even have a garden sometimes mm. when you live in the city. That's right. Yeah. So I'm interested how you were able to convince our community to be going out and engaging with nature when it's maybe considered to be a white space or they don't have time because they're working a lot. How did you make that attractive? That's a very difficult question. Because, um, I mean, like I rightly pointed out, there are a lot of factors here that you have to take into account. One is socioeconomic, where people have to survive on a daily basis. And so even just to afford outdoor gear or outdoor kit, it's so expensive. You, but you want to buy the food, the outdoor bo- working boots or waterproof jackets, all those things, it's all cost. That's mm-hmm. one. Two, transport to get out to those spaces is a challenge. Three, Navigation and orienteering, because if you don't know where you're going in those spaces, how will you get there? This is this is the challenge we have here. And then four is the fear of racism, both overt and covert, where people are worried because already people face racism in the cities now to go out to countryside, they don't know what they were expect, what to, yeah. to face. Yeah. And so it's a whole combination of factors. So what I have done, and as you can see up there, um, that was last year I was awarded a National Heritage Lottery. Yeah, for heritage, 
And um, it was just to demonstrate the fact that I have over the years promoted access to countryside for, I would say, thousands of Black and ethnic minority people, especially in Sheffield. And just to answer your question, it's just a question of um, engaging people and providing education and information and then leading to taking them out to experience these spaces and to gain confidence and self-esteem and to understand that they also belong to those spaces, that sense mm. of belonging to that space. Mm. And building on that by introducing people to other activities within those um, within those spaces and then reconnecting people to those institutions that deliver these environmental services and then ensuring that people are made welcome in those spaces and accepted in those spaces and not um, treated as the other or outcast or categorized. So it's a combination of issues here. For example, much of my, the flagship of my project has been, besides the play that that was won national acclaim, uh, I've also taken groups out to what they call agricultural shows, where basically... There's one um, in Stonely that I know of. Stonely Park, yeah, I've been Stonely yeah. Park one. Yeah. But there's one here up here in South Yorkshire called um, the Harrogate Agricultural Show. I've been... Uh, You've been? Yeah, because <laughs> I used to work in the meat trade. So we used to go and see cattle. <laughs> so That's I've right. been. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you have so you have um these things like this which take place in, in, in the countryside that our people haven't got the access to those spaces to mm. visit those those kind of um uh, things. And so I have done that, organized for the Windrush generation women, Caribbean women, taking them uh, who've been here for 50, 60 years, and I've never been to those kind of um, shows. Mm. They only see it on TV. I've done yeah. it for Asian women as well. Yeah. So it's so much of my work is building on what people are interested in discovering about the countryside. I haven't lived here for 50, 60 years, but lack the resources and the yeah. abilities and the confidence opportunities to access those spaces. That makes a lot of sense. So tell me, what has been the most heart felt response you've had from somebody who you've connected to nature what have they said to you <laughs> that's an interesting one I remember one of the uh, African Caribbean women I went there one day and uh, she said oh Maxwell we've been here for 50 60 years and it took you to come all the way from Africa to come and take us around <laughs> our own backyard oh brilliant <laughs> oh that's excellent <laughs> it's funny sometimes the things that you are right in front of you you don't see them so it took you to do it. Yeah, yeah. And also, um, like I said, when our parents came here, um, they were preoccupied, uh, you know, with work. And uh, mm. I mean, these jobs were very hard jobs they were doing. They didn't have the kind of um, time that we have now in our hands for leisure and recreation. And then also the countryside is riddled. It's a contested space that takes me back to, I know you're going to ask my question about how I got to the Rambler's board. <laughs> yeah, because there's a, there's a history here about yeah. um, the contested nature of the English countryside. Because before, like back in Ghana, the countryside in England used to be what we call the commons, where everybody had a, a piece of plot farming, they were farming. But in 1773, um, they introduced what they, they call the Enclosure Acts, which led to the land being taken away from the poor people. And then the rich people then took over the land and the poor people were pushed into the cities. And so the land was then enclosed. And so as I speak, we've got only 8% of the countryside that we can access. The rest of the 92% of the countryside we can access. Wow. Um, and so it just goes to demonstrate how contested that space is. 
So not until 1932 that um, a group of working class poor people from Sheffield and Manchester decided to trespass. That's why the whole issue of trespass came about. You might have heard of the mass trespass in 1932. So they then trespassed at a place called Kinder Scout in the Pigdish National Park, where basically um, that particular part of the kind of that part belongs to the Duke of Devonshire, who mm. then sent out policemen and gamekeepers to, to arrest them. Uh, and they were arrayed before court and sentenced for trespassing. And so trespassing is a very big issue in England. And yet a lot of people are not aware of these these, these things. No. And, and so much of the work I was doing um, was, uh, you know, which led to me being appointed onto the Ramblers board, which I didn't even know because I heard of the Rambler. I didn't know what they did. I didn't know they are existing. If you're not within those spaces or if you're not within those clubs or if you're not within those organizations, you're an outsider. You don't know what is there. You don't know the history. So yeah. both the cultural, ecological history of the British landscape, people are not aware of it. Mm. So the mass trespass in 1932 was the first time that a bit of the countryside was open, just a bit, for mm. people to be able to access the moors, the hills, and the distance. It took until up to the year 2000 that the Crow Act, yeah, the, the Countryside Rights of Way Act was passed, yeah. where people then have the freedom to roam in the countryside. Wow. So okay. only 23 years ago. It's a long, long time. I mean, the, the, the Ramblers, yeah, so 23 years ago. Yeah. At the moment, as we speak, we have only, only 8%. And um, last year was 90 years of the Kinder Mass Trespass, celebration of the Kinder Mass Trespass. And it was the first time ever in the history of this country that Black and people of color were involved in reenacting the Mass Trespass at Kinder Scout. Where that was spoke- because of you. Was it? Well, yeah, where, yeah. Where I spoke about um, I spoke about the fact that as black people, we, you know, we have presence in this country, but we have been erased because you do have black enslaved people who were involved in the properties of the National Trust, um, which eventually, you know, came to light when um, Professor Colin Powell, University of Leicester, uh, was commissioned by the National Trust to do studies on these properties, which led to the government calling it woke culture because they weren't happy, they weren't comfortable that uh, much of the properties were, were, you know, were based on um, slave slavery. Uh, oh, yeah. The toil of enslaved people built yeah. those properties. So these histories are not told. So what okay. was the outcome of that, though, that they were going to what? Rep- do reparations or just acknowledge that they... Well, I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, reparations is something, but they've not done anything. Uh, you know, I mean, in Scotland, I think they have done some kind of reparations uh, where they've given some money too, I think uh, some of the Caribbean countries. I don't yeah. know But in England, no, it's a different ball game. And so, you know, as I speak, you know, whole issue of um, you know, black people and our contributions to the British landscape is still not re- not recognized at all. It's not given yeah. that credence or that that much of um, yeah. attention. This eight percent does that include the parks that we can now roam in? Like, what does the eight percent? Yeah, it, it, that's the countryside. The English countryside. Uh, so the countryside is different from the parks. That's right. So the English countryside. Where where are these eight percent? Where are we allowed to go? Well, I mean, like we have got um we've got fifteen national parks in England. Mm. Okay. And these fifteen national parks with England, um, the fact is that the land that these parks are cited are in private hands. Ah, uh, okay. You you understand what comes, what comes. Mm. it's not like 
it's not like um you know other public parks in the world like in the US or maybe in um in South Africa these lands where the parks are sited belong to the land belong to people so you have for example 95% of the Northumberland National Park is private in private hands okay so that okay. means we couldn't go there except for the 5% that is public you could only go to where it is where you are allowed to tra- where you are allowed to walk okay, okay? So um, recently there was a case called Dartmoor National Park where I'm involved in a group called the Right to Room campaign where we were advocating for greater access to the countryside. Uh, and Dartmoor National Park, the land is owned by somebody. It's private land. Hmm. Um, and people went there to camp and the landowner, you know, barred them from camping. And then the case was taken to court and the court hmm. ruled in favor of the landowner. It's a very big, big issue in England. You know, if you own land, you own everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the work we are doing is trying to advocate for greater access to the countryside. Um, because in 2018, the government came out what they call the government 25-year environment plan, then led to what it introduced in 2019 called the Julian Glover Review, which basically was to promote access to these spaces for everyone. People, And, you know, when the COVID happened, people had plenty of time in their hands now to go out into the countryside, yes. new spaces to reconnect to nature and that kind of thing. And then they discovered that those spaces were out of bounds. I this, see that. This, this is the problem we have. So basically, this is ongoing and this is a campaign that we can support now that we know about it. How can we yes. support? Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think the thing is that, like I said, um, as black people, we are more preoccupied with our daily survival and um, things, you know. So these things like these people are not uh, aware of are not aware and uh, even if they are it can be very very difficult for them because um, before this trespassing issue i mentioned to you abina if you trespass well it used to be a civil offense mm-hmm. but now <laughs> the government has passed a bill last year making it a criminal offense so wow that is very scary as well uh, even though the government did say it's targeting traveler communities like the roman slovak people who who go who do camping but you know by by in actual fact it just takes you as a black person to trespass you know um you know yeah. inadvertently in someone's land in the countryside and uh, they call the rural police and then you could be in trouble and already we have got bad history with the police in the cities so it it could be a way of trying to discourage people from wanting to go outside so so if we are wanting to engage with the environment safely how how can we do that through the work that you do well i mean the only way you can do that through is um is trying to um connect connect with my charity um called Sheffield environmental movement and then um read the work i've been doing and then if you need me to come over wherever black communities are that they want to learn more because what i do is i also offer residential weekends um, mm. I'm organizing one where I'm taking 40 people to a residential weekend where they're going to be trained in work leadership, first aid, orienteering, map reading, and navigation. And then the following week, I'm taking another 40 again. It's systematically introducing people to the countryside uh, through education, information, and their experiential learning and mm. these kind of residential activities I'm talking about. Because mostly you expect schools to be doing that, especially for young people to learn more. You know, it's I mean, in most deprived and black and minority schools, you don't have those, those opportunities of in place. And so, and parents themselves haven't got the knowledge and the time to take their children out to a countryside to learn yeah. about the countryside and those kind of things. So there's that kind of, um, it's a vicious circle. Parents haven't got that knowledge, prior knowledge. 
So how can they pass that on to, 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 yeah. to their children? So say, for example, if you were born here and um, your parents took you out walking in the countryside, then you grow to have yeah. that knowledge awareness of that space so you can yeah. easily access it if your parents haven't got that experience or knowledge and school and through school you don't go there right this is where young people have been when they were young they've been out there but now the grown-ups they've lost that distance so they've even yeah. lost that because there's no continuity in terms of that yeah so that's that is the gap is i was gonna say there was something really interesting that you i'd read about you you're named mm. one of 70 most remarkable people in the history of the Peak District National Park. That's a very big title. How did that come about? Well, um, again, it goes back to what I was telling you about the history of um, you know, national parks in the UK. The Peak District is the first national park to be created in 1951. And um, it was created, I think, in after the Second World War, what happened was um they, they wanted to create spaces where you know, soldiers could have the opportunity to recuperate in terms of um the war after the war, have places to relax and reconnect to nature and those kind of things. Mm. Um, but then again, like I said, because the parks, the, those spaces where the parks are are privately owned, it was so contested. It took a long, long time before the Countryside Rights of Way Act was passed in 1949, and then leading to the Crow Act in 2000. Like I said, and and so you find out that um because of this contested history of um of the countryside people are not aware of these histories i because i did my um, postgraduate in um environmental management conservation in england i i was privileged to have that kind of ecological history and also knowledge about these spaces and then i was also involved in reenacting what they call the mass trespass at kinder scout kinder scout is where the trespasses trespassed yeah so by being involved in these things and taking groups out for a long time setting up my charity um chef environmental movement um also working at uh you know policy level to influence uh environmental organizations to understand how they can work with minoritized groups i'm sure true along those lines that eventually uh, led to me being recognized as one of the 70 most remarkable people in the history of the Pigdish National Park. So it's, it's it wasn't just a one day thing. It was, I think, a long history of my campaign, make the countryside accessible to black and minority people, probably. I think that was what led to that recognition. Yeah, well, we're very pleased to have you have that title. And then also as part of the work I have done, is like um, I've been involved with um, doing a work with Joanna Lomley, um, mm. as part of a home sweet home you know series episode much of my work is to look at how you know working with or linking up with celebrities like that can open up the opportunity for um black people to see those spaces as pieces of belonging that they can also they can also access yeah definitely and and that brings us up to more recently your your honors award and i wanted to know if that was a surprise for you to receive it and what the impact has been since receiving it? It was uh, a surprise in the sense that I never anticipated that I would be recognized for the honors because um, I was just doing it out of my heart, from the bottom of my heart, what I was doing to serve my community and serve my people. I'm not interested in accolades per se. I'm interested in making, transforming lives and the difference impact I make on people. So by virtue of what I do, you know, let my recognition. So service to the community can lead to you being recognized for things that you never even put your mind on. Uh-huh. So 
it came as a surprise to me um out of the blue but then um so mm. i am continuing to do that work along those lines nothing has changed but i think i am now being viewed as some as a champion as ambassador as a mentor mm. to others who well, especially young people can also look up because i mean the environmental field is quite a niche area you find you hardly find black and ethnic minority people in that yeah. field at all. it's the second least diverse sector in the whole of the uk only second to farming wow Wow. That just tells you how exclusive it is. Yeah. Um, so uh, to find people like my type in those specific disciplines is quite rare. And so I view myself as a champion and a role model and ambassador to other black people or young yeah. people to yeah. view the space as a space of theirs as well. That if I can access that space and then progress and be recognized and get to where I am today, then they can equally achieve that. Yeah, I think that's a really good message. Okay, yeah. So as you were saying, the the reason for the the hundred black men walking group was for yeah. that ability to create another space for black men to convene, wasn't it? Um, the 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 reason for setting up the walking group was um for middle aged black men to walk and talk. That was the motto of the the of the group. Yeah. To walk and talk for our mental health and well being, because as you are aware. The only spaces that black people, black men or black people tend to converge are the barber shops yeah. or the hairdressers. So those are the confined spaces that they go to share, yeah. to share their lived experience yeah. of things. Okay. So we wanted to create that wider outdoor space. And that is a countryside where yeah. people could walk freely without being judged, without being so we so because of that, you know, it, it promoted that kind of friendship and respect, yeah. you know, and that so when you people walk. It, it, it improves their mental and physical well-being. It also promotes friendship, help to distress. Yeah. You know, it's a whole lot of um health benefits. Mental health is a big issue in our community, especially among black men. Yeah, who are very reluctant to share. Yeah, it's a taboo. They are reluctant to talk about these issues, mm -hmm. and we know black men. Besides the fact that um, you know, when we are young, we are quite active, but as we grow older, we become more sedentary. Uh, we have a lot of socioeconomic problems, family issues, and those kind of uh, problems, which really can impact on our mental health. And so creating a space where black men can walk together, like-minded, can walk together um, and explore, uh, you know, their lived experience and share, I think in a way can help with people's mental health problems. Mm. So that is why we felt it was so important. And that's why I mentioned briefly about the barber shops and the hairdressers where I don't know if you've seen the film called The Barbers. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that just goes to tell you how important it is to create spaces. And if you don't, you're not able to create spaces that are welcoming, then people will not want to come into those spaces. So yeah. the work for help group is to create those welcoming spaces for people to feel accepted in those spaces, not to be judged, not to be treated differently. And so with our working group, we got people from all walks of life. Now it's no it's no longer called the hundred black men work for health. It's now called work for health. So it's it's moved from hundred black men to work for health. Where basically it now embraces women, young people, other people of color. So it's now called work for health. But the ethos is still the same. Where basically it's just to walk and talk to improve our mental and physical well being. So how often do you meet? First Saturday of every month. In fact, next year will be our twenty year anniversary, and it's the first ever black and people of color working group to be set up in the uk is just recently that we have other groups like muslim hikers who just mm. came into being mm. and then black girls hike who just came into being 
uh, and then the stepping stones in Bristol. So all these other working groups that are just emerging now are, have all come as a result of the 100 Black Men Work for Hebu, who started in 2004. That's really brilliant. Mm-hmm. So just to go back, I wanted to find out about the work you're doing to see if you see any synergy with bringing it to Ghana. Or I suppose um, we you have to look at the different political context. Geopolitically speaking, you find that um, Ghana, the setting is completely different in the sense that um, you have situations where, as you can imagine, now, I mean, climate change is a very, very big issue, which is impacting on the lives of a lot of, lot of people. I think previously our people took it for granted that nature is going to be there forever and that whatever we do, nature will still be there. Now things have changed. Besides nature being influenced externally because of the impact of climate change, which is caused by um, countries from the north, which, yeah. which emit 96% of greenhouse gases, which is impacting on the climate and does impact on the livelihoods of our people. So much of the much of the our pristine or ecosystems are being destroyed now. And our governments are not that really keen to protect our ecosystems. So you find out that because government is not keen to protect our ecosystems and because people's livelihoods are being impacted on the on the exploitation of the resources, people have lost touch with nature now. And people are migrating into the cities, climate change. And so people are beginning to lose that traditional knowledge that we used to have back home, which obviously was our source of livelihood and everything. And so to replicate whatever is happening here in Ghana is a challenge in the sense that basically here, you know, we are, we are we, we're quite minoritized. We are trying to do something that can help protect us as our communities. Whereas in Ghana, we already know that nature is our everything. So nothing stops us really from protecting our ecosystems, but it has to do with how government is prepared to support people really to care for the ecosystems. Because I know I've heard a lot about stories in Ghana about mining, polluting the river, the river, river courses, killing marine life and destroying things, the, you know, lumbering and all those kind of things, which is destroying the whole landscape and is destroying lives. And so you need to have a responsible government. And so even though you might want to replicate the issue of nature connectedness back home, but where you don't have a government, you have a government that is not really willing to support people to undertake afforestation or to stop mining illegal, you know, illegal mine or whatever they call galamsey as they call it in Ghana, you know, and all those kind of um, extractive activities that are destroying the ecosystems then you are powerless really to bring about the change that you want to. So you find that here, we don't have power here, but we can do things in a, on a small scale basis to improve our health and well-being um, because we don't have access to land here. We just exist in, no, not living here and within our own means. But in Ghana, that is our home. And we have to look at how we can make it livable, not for only the current, but the future generations. But if the way, the rate at which the destruction of the ecosystem is happening in Ghana, if it continues that way, then there's no real, um, you know, opportunities for the future generations to have anything better to live. The idea of having leisure and recreation, really, again, it would be like back home, uh, just like here, where if you are okay, then you go for leisure and recreation. But back home, if you're not okay, how will you go for leisure and recreation? How could you go walking, 
because they're already people are suffering, so they have to work every day from A to Z. They are not healthy. No, no. pesticides and chemicals, and mm. and the people are eating this food, this fast food. So they've embraced the whole Western notion of existence. Yeah, to their very demise because yeah. we had a way of living our lives back home mm. that created very healthy lives because we had close bond to nature, right? But now people are divorced, and so people move all over to the city now, where it's zero rural ever migration. People in the city, in the rural areas are dying with that indigenous knowledge that they had previously to, to maintain the land and farm the land because of climate change. So the young people are moving. The older people are left in the villages. They are dying away with all that knowledge. Well, yeah, they are dying with all the cultures. And the people are crowded in the city, which is causing conflict, is causing problems, causing diseases. And so where are we going? And this is what the government should be paying attention yeah. to, you know, this, all this, um, you know, uh, destruction of the ecosystems. Because if people are living in the village and they have no food to, to eat, what will they do? Well, that's why we'll talk about environment. Environment is holistic. It's interconnected. You can't, you can't separate it. It's all connected. Yeah. In that holistic way, we'll be treating the environment as a separate entity to the economy yeah. and to politics and to all other other, other disciplines, but only we still have to approach the environment holistically. And that's why I'm interested in the whole discourse of the environment. That's why I talk about environmental justice mm. and, and human rights, because all these are interlinked. So how, how long do you have left until you finish your PhD? Uh, well, I mean, I've just, I'm just, I'm writing now. So I've got, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm writing now. So I've got this year to write up. So um, it's a lot of work. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, especially since my PhD is a policy document. It's not just mm. an ordinary PhD, but obviously it is to critique government policy in terms of, um, you know, national parks and, and black people. So so it takes a lot of, it's hard, a lot of hard work. Well, and we're then, wishing you all the best to, you know, complete it. And hopefully we can revisit this conversation with you once you're published. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And um if yeah. I can um, also link up with my, you got my charity website. Um, yes. Which is uh, www.shefflenvironmentalmovement.org.uk. Yes. Uh, people want to log in um, or Google and then check out what the work we do. Um, and also if people want to link up with the work I do um, to see what about work in the UK or maybe back in Ghana to see how we can promote um you know our very existence in mm. a cohesive way then um then people are welcome to contact me oh brilliant thank you so much thanks for your time thank you for listening to this episode to listen to more content like this visit our monthly academy magazine connecting communities podcast on apple spotify buzzsprout or wherever you listen to your audio Follow our news on academagazine.com and academagazine.co.uk and access exclusive early release content and discounts at ko-fi.com forward slash academagazine. The music in this episode is called Life No Day Easy by Chechaku and the Super Pong Stars and is a special remix exclusively for Academagazine. Superapong Stars is a high-octane patchwork of Ghana's indigenous genres, including palm wine music, high life, 
Afrobeat and Afrofunk. You can find out more about the band on their Instagram, Super Pong Stars. Thank you.